Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 156 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, uh, March 3rd in 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek, and we have a, a first on the podcast. What is that first, Steve? We, we have a flag officer in the in the room. Attention on deck. Uh, well, yeah, neither of us knew to do that, but you know. Woo. Um, so we're honored to have uh, General John Baker, Brigadier General of the U.S. Marine Corps, who is the, the Chief Defense Counsel for the Guantanamo Military Commissions, which is a pretty boring, dry, uninteresting job, right? That's right. No. An unending job. <laughs> An ending job. <laughs> yes, the, the, it's like the Hotel California of, of lawyer jobs. <laughs> That actually seems to be true a lot about Indeed. a lot of a lot of folks who've been enmeshed in the proceedings down there. General Baker, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. It's um, great to have you here. We're gonna, you know, General Baker was in town for among other things the the Federal Public Defender Conference, um, and so he was kind enough to spend some time this morning with a group of our students. Um, thank you for paying for that, Bobby. Oh, um, yeah. Well, I didn't pay out of pocket. Thank yeah. you, Uncle Strauss. Center. Fair enough, Uncle Strauss Center. Um, but we thought, you know. Not yes, there's plenty of other national security stuff happening out there in the world, um, but this was too good of an opportunity to pass up. So right, so so we will be back maybe as soon as tomorrow with <gasps> a more conventional. Is this a double a double a episode double week? week? Yeah, a non-emergency double episode. That's crazy. We'll see. Well, um, there's plenty of time between now and tomorrow for emergencies. <laughs> Sadly, that's quite true. Yes. Uh, so we're we're just gonna. This will be an interview show, although we are gonna get frivolous at the end, and probably at various points along the way. Frivolous. Us? No, never. Um, oh, I, I do want to say, so oh. I just got back last night um, from a great trip uh, to D.C. to do the uh, uh, the Staff Judge Advocates Legal Conference for Cybercom, which is an annual uh, event that I really enjoy attending. You, you've learned so much. Really great people. And uh, in case any of y'all are listening, I did run into uh, a few folks who listened to the show. So thank y'all for being listeners. I really enjoyed getting to be in in, in your company yesterday, that was that was a good time. We got some, you know, we got some 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 interesting uh, uh, listener people. We definitely do. We definitely uh, do. There's one actually. I want to find this email because I got a great email about. Apparently, we're 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 super hot in the. Uh, wait, I want to get this exactly right. I was um, hoping you'd just say we're just super hot, but that didn't seem very plausible. Uh, so I was figured there'd be more. The NSL sentence. podcast. So I, this is. Uh, uh, I don't want to identify the person who sent this because they said privately. Uh, the NSL podcast is a cult favorite in the high energy particle physics world. Nice. To which I say, wow, you yeah. guys are really slumming it. This this makes sense because I know very little about this, but I assume that this leads down a quantum pathway where there are uh, a multiverse of realities, and there had to be one where we are popular amongst the right, there's energy that, there's particle that, There's uh, what, Parallels, right? It's the Next Generation episode where the with every quantum, re anything that can happen does happen. And, and so, you know, million monkeys on million typewriters. <laughs> <laughs> um, which reminds me, so one of Sydney's favorite books is Quantum Entanglement for Babies. Oh, really? It's excellent. It's excellent. <laughs> That's all it's awesome. Excellent. All right, but uh, to the batter hand. So um, we thought we'd maybe just sort of throw some questions towards you, General Baker, and um, trying to put you too much on the spot. I mean, um, I do at some point want to ask you about being the one, you know, new detainee at Guantanamo in the Trump administration, um, but we'll get to that. So um, the, the, I guess, say, say a bit about sort of how you came to become, right, Chief Defense Counsel, your, your career path, law school, you know, what led you to sort of want to be a military lawyer in general, and then how did you end up with this particular um, interesting billet? Okay. So I uh, wanted to go to law school because I was a, a uh, logistics officer, and I served on administrative separation boards, which is how we essentially fire service members that, that are engaged in misconduct. Um, 
and I was sitting as a member of a board, and I saw a Marine Defense Council defending a Marine, and he made an argument that just didn't make any sense to me. And so I said, I think I could do better than that, uh, <laughs> which, looking back on it, was super egotistical. Um, and so I decided to go to law school um, and went to law school, University of Pittsburgh. Um, go Panthers. Go Panthers. Uh, went, after Pitt, I went to uh, Cherry Point, and I started off as a legal assistant attorney. Um, helping, you know, kind of legal aid sort of thing. Uh, then became a defense counsel. Uh, I was in as a prosecutor. Then I went to Okinawa, Japan to be a judge. Um, and after I was a judge in Okinawa, uh, I went to get my LLM at, uh, in Charlottesville. Um, then I was the regional, then I was at Quantico as an SJA. I prosecuted some cases in California. And then, John, let me interrupt. Was that LLM at the Jack School? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, not, not UVA. No, not UVA. Okay. Uh, definitely. Um, it was on the campus. Right, right. That's actually, it's, it's such a wonderful arrangement to digress on that a bit. Oh, it's uh, fantastic. People don't who haven't been there to understand that, so TJAG Licks, the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, is immediately adjacent to UVA Law, which is super convenient for all the folks in our community who tend to bleed over there. Right. And I'm old enough that I call it, I refuse to call it TJAG Licks, and I call it the JAG School. Ah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> now, what, did you have a specialization at that point? No, I, I, uh, I, came, I went there after having served as a judge, and I thought I would want to do something different. So I, I, my LLM was in military or was in, uh, yeah, military law, as opposed to some people went criminal, some people went it was pre cyber, but you know. Yeah. So I, I did not have a specialty, um, and I thought that I would leave there and do you know be some sort of uh, you know SGA, some operational command, um, and the. The assigners decided that I should be the SGA Quantico, which is not quite the same thing as an upper or a deputy SGA Quantico. Um, turned out to be great. I met uh, Colonel Rose Favors, was the SGA there, um, and then she became the chief defense counsel of the Marine Corps. Uh, and so I really liked working for her. So I follow. I became a regional defense counsel, um, and then uh, then I became the chief defense counsel of the Marine Corps. Um, then I went to Judge Ad I was sentenced, sentenced to a couple of years at Judge Advocate Division uh, <laughs> to do military justice policy. Um, and how I ended up in this job was that in the 2014, I think it is, NDAA, uh, they said that there needed to be parity of rank between the chief prosecutor and chief defense counsel. Uh, and General Martins is the chief prosecutor, and so they had a they had a selection board. Uh, all they looked at all colonel judge advocates in the services that wanted to be considered for the position. Um, I was one of them. I was fortunate enough to be selected. And then in 2015, I became the chief defense counsel. Um, and my promotion to brigadier general is specifically tied to while I'm serving in this position. Um, and so I've been here. I had no idea in 2015 <laughs> that come 2020, I'd still be here. Oh, um, just wait. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I was going to say, or, or, or that all these trials would, would not have happened. Right. Come on, um, January trial date. <laughs> January of what year? Yeah. yeah, I didn't specify. <laughs> Can I ask, when, when you were considering whether to throw your hat in the ring for that selection, mm -hmm. tell us about your thought process. What were the, the sort of the, the major advantages and disadvantages as you saw them at the time? So um, I really liked, I really enjoy leading litigators. I uh, really, and I, I've been in leadership positions on both sides, prosecution and defense. Um, I like leading defense counsel more. Um, uh, and I, I knew what the, I mean, I knew the commissions existed, but I didn't really know what, I mean, I, I had friends that were there, but it was just this small, I didn't really know what it was, but I, but I thought that it was, 
I mean, what an opportunity to be a general officer be the, and to be in charge of an organization that is, uh, you know, committed to defending people. So it was, it, I was an easy, I was an, I was an eager, I was an eager volunteer. Um, uh, and then I, no idea if I was going to be the guy that was picked. Uh, I certainly super, feel really fortunate that I was. Were there any downsides you anticipated that uh, were kind of holding you back at all at that point? No, I mean, I, you know, some people, you know, they think if you're going to go do that, that would be bad for your career. Uh, I, in my Marine Corps career, uh, it didn't matter what, what seat in the courtroom I had, the, you know, the, the judgment was, did you perform while doing it? Um, so um, I had zero hesitation. Um, and is, that, is that still true today? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I, I have... If I knew in twenty, if I knew in twenty fifteen what I knew and know in twenty twenty, I would be even more eager to do it. Really? Yeah. Oh, I mean, the the, um, the people that work for me are just you know they. This is going to sound trite, but they inspire me every day. I mean, their dedication to what they do uh, is, you know, that's what keeps me getting up and going to work every day. Not figuring out. Because my job is purely administrative and logistical. Um, you know, it's trying to get people stuff. It's fighting the bureaucracy. Um, that's not particularly fun or glamorous, but leading a group of people is just incredible. You sound like an associate dean. I can really <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, who, what are you leading? <laughs> you. Yeah. I felt led. <laughs> you should. And I, I, wait, I, and feel, I feel inspired there to come go. to work. Yes, you probably got to worry about, like, you know, are the toilets working? <laughs> you, that, happily, is not, it's like one of the few things that are on my list. Um, Bob, Bob's in charge of a lot of things in this building. Um, so I guess, I, you know, it's we obviously are, are um, amateur followers of the commissions, right? You are a professional follower of the commissions. I, I'm not even sure where to start a conversation about the commissions, but I guess, I mean, if you were, if you were sort of trying to suggest what has gone wrong, because um, I, mean, I think, you know, Bobby and I differ on some of the things that have gone wrong and whether those are legal objections or policy objections, I think I can say safely that we both think things have gone wrong. I, I think I think we agree that they're not working yes. it's because it's 2020 when we're having this conversation. Right. So so I guess, you know, it, what, where, what do you think, where, where to you have the biggest sort of um, hiccups arisen? Um, and, and to what extent are we sort of in a position where any of those can be resolved? So the biggest hiccup, uh, I think, was the decision to, um, you know, it's a whole rendition, detention, interrogation program. Um, you know, I'm often asked, you know, could, are these current commissions um, salvageable? Um, you know, if we, if we brought a new defendant in tomorrow that wasn't touched, um, it didn't, you know, wasn't involved in the RDI program, would they work? And, and we don't know the answer to that because we've only seen these commissions um, that have just been tainted by torture. Um, uh, I mean, I, you know, they, they created... So I'm a, the, the commission process, every time we have a big war, we use them. I mean, they are a useful tool in the nation's toolkit, um, uh, but they just didn't work here. Can, um, we, can we maybe dig into it by starting with that point that there is a long tradition of using them yep. and that they have a proper role to play? So I'm hearing you saying that you agree with that, that, that 
when done right in the right circumstances, this is an important part of the toolkit. Do you agree with that? Yes. And if so, if you can expand upon in the abstract, why should we ever use them? Why not always fall back on courts martial so, in federal civilian prosecution? You know, if you can, this is obviously a purely a hypothetical, but if we had a big land campaign down in South America for some reason, and the civil court system wasn't working, I mean, that's, you know, that's what happened in the Mexican-American War. Yeah. They, they used the commission to kind of keep justice. Um, uh, this is sort of the Prevost court model. Right. Or in, um, yeah, so I, I mean, I, and they used them after World War II. I mean, they, there's, there's, there is a tradition of them being used and being looked at historically as being useful. Um, so uh, I, I have no reason to think that that couldn't happen again. Um, but in this current iteration, it has not happened. Um, and I think, it, I think it doesn't matter, I would assume that it doesn't matter where you're sitting from or where you're looking at, but it's, like you said, it's 2020. Um, and we have, uh, you know, we, the next court is, you know, we're supposed to, we're supposed to begin the 9-11 trial in January of 2021. Um, I think that that's unlikely to happen. <laughs> so, so do we. <laughs> but even if it does, you know, let's assume that Judge Cohen keeps the case on track. Um, you know, that's, that is, you know, that's 10 years after these cases started. And it's... Can we play that? Can we play that? So, I, I mean, imagine, you know, miracle of miracles, January 2021 is the trial date. I mean, do you have any sense of how long the trial itself is projected to take, even assuming things go... Relatively, I, I don't mean smoothly, but just relatively as as maybe the parties would, or at least the government might hope. So uh, last week, that all runs together. Last week, or the week before, when Judge Cohen issued his ruling excusing Jim Harrington, yeah. um, he ex he talked about how long he thought the trial would take, and he thinks the trial will take six to nine months. Um, I think the uh, the defense teams thinks it'll take longer, um, and I I frankly don't recall what General Martins's team has said. And this, and this, of course, assumes there's no break for interlocutory appeals right. or any of that, you know, Michigan. So, so even the sort of best case scenario is a verdict maybe at the end of 2021, maybe. Right. Um, and then there's the CMCR appeal, and then there's the D.C. Circuit appeal, and then there's potentially the Supreme Court. Right. Right. And, you know, the military tradition on capital litigation right. is not very good. Right. Um, I think we have something like an 80% reversal rate um, on cases a heck of a lot less complicated than these. Although, although that, that, you know, that, that ticked down a little bit Friday afternoon. Right. Yeah, uh, with the Hennessy. Right. Yeah, uh, the Court of Appeals to the Armed Forces uh, affirmed ah. the death sentence in Hennessy. Ah. Um, which raises some retiree jurisdiction questions, but we'll, we'll save that <laughs> oh, for another time. It, it did raise a, yeah. yeah. Um, so I mean the the it, I guess the the legacy point. Do you see that as I mean obviously it's an issue for the nine eleven case. It's an issue for Nashiri. Do you see it as an issue for Hadi as well? The the sort of the legacy of the RDI program and how it infects the sort of perception of these proceedings. Because you know I, when I think of the nine eleven defendants in Nashiri, there's I mean they're all mentioned in right. the SSCI report, right? Hadi comes along later in the process. So there's going to there's going to be some litigation about that, mm -hmm. I think, uh, about uh, how his uh, treatment and confinement uh, impacted him. But um, so part of the reason why the Hadi case isn't um, uh, 
hasn't progressed is because of his health. Right. Um, and the defense teams have argued in, in court that his treatment and confinement has, has played a role in his needing five or six, uh, I forget the number, of back surgeries. Right. Um, uh, but it's, I mean, the RDI program infects everything. Um, I mean, you know, where, you know, where the high-value detainees are held. Who can have access to their medical records? I mean, all the class of all the classification stuff has really made it complicated. Um, can we talk a bit about your your particular uh, role as a defendant in the commissions? <laughs> yeah, we we can. Um, uh, so I mean, I, I think you know, folks who have listened to this podcast for a while will will remember not necessarily fondly our ten layer dip metaphor, oh, God. Um, yes. right? For everything that went wrong in Al Nashiri, I guess. Um, we obviously have our views about how that unfolded, but could you just say a bit insofar as what you're willing to say publicly about, you know, your perspective on the whole sort of underlying issue of excusing counsel and the, what, you know, what actually, like, I think some of our listeners might like to hear, like, what actually happened to you um, and how did things unfold from there? So um, the regulation uh, for or the Rule for Military Commission 505, um, at the time uh, that that all unfolded, gave me exclusive excusal authority um, for defense counsel. Um, uh, the government's position and the judge's position at the time was that that was not the case. Uh, judge Acosta in the uh, Nishiri case has since uh, affirmatively ruled that I was the proper excusal authority at the time. Um, oh, the rule has changed since. They, they've, okay. So they changed the rule um, about six months or so ago, and now the judge is the only is, is the exclusive uh, uh, excusal authority. Um, so I had so the rules required me to find good cause to excuse a defense counsel, um, and I had good cause. Uh, much of much of the much of why I had good cause is classified, and I, I don't want to talk about that. Um, I can't talk about that. Um, so uh, I excused, I had good cause to excuse Rick Kamen, uh, Mary Spears, and Rosa Eliades, and, and so I did. Um, it was not an easy decision, and it is not a rash decision. It's one I spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, and then uh, we went down to Guantanamo, um, and uh, the, very, the very short version is that Judge Spath ordered me to redo or to... Uh, to order them to come down to Guantanamo, and I felt that they had been properly excused, uh, and that the, I had good cause for that excusal, so I refused that. Um, I refused that order, um, and was subsequently and sum, summarily held in contempt. Uh, Judge Lambert uh, ruled that I was unlawfully held in contempt, um, so that contempt conviction was set aside. Sometime uh, later. Sometime later. Um, so. Uh, when I was held in contempt, I was uh, the judge uh, set my room as a place of confinement. So when people say you know you're confined, you know the when the word went out that I was confined at Guantanamo, people I you know I presume people thought that I was uh, you know at Going Camp, Camp Seven. Seven, right? Yeah. No, you guess, was, they reopened Camp X right for you, right? And I was so I was uh, essentially confined to quarters uh, for two and a half days, and then the convening authority. We had a habeas hearing, um, and the judge set. Initial habeas hearing, the judge set two o'clock on a Friday to issue his opinion. At one o'clock on Friday, uh, the convening authority uh, deferred my confinement, and then uh, so I was released from confinement then, and I got went home the next day as scheduled. 
<laughs> with a pretty good story. Yes, I guess with a pretty good story. Wow. Um, I mean, that's the so I've we've talked before about the the ultimate DC Circuit decision, and I guess what we're calling the Sherry Three. Um, where the court wipes out what three and a half years of rulings by, or two and a half years of rulings two, by, yeah. less, by than, less than three years, two and a half years yep. of, right by by Judge Spath. Um, the you know the DC Circuit in the process um, dismissed uh, the the Eliottis and Spears petition on the grounds that they thought it was moot because right. one of the rulings they wiped out was the ruling holding you in contempt and right. holding me right. Um, I I'm not sure that wasn't a mistake. Right, and I and I wonder if, if it would have been better for the commissions to have the court resolve the, you know, the excusal, the merits of the excusal question at the time. And I'm I'm curious if you have thoughts about that. Well, Judge Acosta has has, has subsequently very clearly ruled uh, has has resolved the issue. Um, in the Sherry. In the Sherry. Um, the. So if you listen to the oral argument, uh, the. Two, one or two, I forget which, of the D.C. Circuit judges literally laughed at the government's interpretation of the rules. So um, I just think it was that it was just not correct at the time. Um, I always, I always think it's better. I, I I always think it's better for an appellate court to resolve an issue because it solves it, which right. is like the opposite of what appellate courts do because they're <laughs> you know they're kind of issue avoid you know issue avoidance. Um, I think it's very clear uh, that the rules at the time uh, what they were, and I also think they subsequently have changed the rules. Right. Um, and I'll, you know, I, I have I'll follow the rules. Um, um, on the theme of sort of things being resolved sooner rather than later, um, so I I may be on an island on um, why I hate Alnishiri too, um, the the abstention decision, but the right the the sort of the notion that the civilian courts will not resolve jurisdictional challenges to the commissions until after a post-conviction appeal or until on a post-conviction appeal. Um, is it naive of me to think that like we'd all be better off to have those questions resolved ex ante? I mean, are there circumstances where it actually might be better for the parties to have that question open in the commission itself? Because um, I, I sort of, you know, I, I take the view that, that from a legitimacy perspective, right, knowing if, for example, the commission has subject matter jurisdiction over Nishiri, one way or the other, and we might disagree about, about the answer, um, would save everybody a lot of hassle. I would agree. Um, but is there, is there anything to the notion that the uncertainty actually has leveraging effects within the trial? So I'm, I'm going to totally cheese out here in, in that I am not a litigant. Yeah. I mean, and so I, I don't know if I have a if I have a litig, I mean, I, I love to litigate, but I'm just not a litigant in this process. So I don't know, could it be better for the prosecution? Could it be better for the defense? Boy, it, but it would just be so much better if we knew. Yeah. Um, because, um, you know, the Nashiri case is supposed to start trial 2022. Assume, you know, let's go to La La Land for a minute and assume that that happens. <laughs> um, and then what? After we do this capital trial, they someone later decides 10 years that they didn't have jurisdiction. I mean, I, it would be, that's part, I think that's part of the challenge of the commission process is there's just so much unknown uh, that really, it really makes it hard to give it legitimacy. What about looking ahead and questions that are on the horizon that you can talk about that you think we and others who follow this area ought to be watching for that are beyond the obvious, hey, the trial date's supposed to be this. What, what are we doing wrong? Yeah. 
no. What, what will we do right in the future? <laughs> I mean, so there. I mean, right now there's litigation going on in the 9/11 case over the admissibility of the you know the so-called clean team statements. Right. Um, that seems like a big one. That's a huge deal, uh, and, and it's also an example of why you you know why you. Why you have hearings and why you call witnesses and why you get evidence? Because one thing we've learned is, I think we should remove the word "clean." Um, the, the connection between the FBI and the CIA is so—I uh, mean, it's just so connected to the to the initial taking of the statements. Um, uh, that's a big issue. Um, there's a issue brewing still on the appointment of all the judges. Uh, so Judge Spath was was found, uh, you know. The issue in the Nashiri case, the Judge Spath had a conflict. Um, the first judge in the Hadi al-Iraqi case, uh, 30, I think it's 35 minutes after that case started, they had an arraignment, and then he went home. He's applied, he applied for an immigration law judge job. <laughs> Why? That, that Can we issue on that real quick? Why is that such a common pathway? So military, I, I this is, you know, one man's opinion, but uh, yeah, I, I presume that the Department of Justice likes to have experienced immigration law judges that are used to quickly deciding things, have experiences as, as, uh, as a you know, prior judge experience. Um, and, and there's also, I think, a veteran's preference. Maybe. And so I think it's yeah. a, right, so it's, it is a, it is a, it is a well-paying government job for folks who are retiring from right. the service. Um, prior judicial experience, I think, is from the government's perspective, a huge plus. Right. Um, and there's a preference for veterans, which means you're especially competitive for the mm, position right. as an applicant. Makes sense. And, and they're all, you know, I know several people that are immigration law judges that were former military judges that were uh, smart, articulate, uh, dedicated. Uh, the, uh, the, it's a good pool of people to, to, yeah. to pull from unless, <laughs> you know, you're also the Department of Justice is involved in, in the prosecution of your case. Right. <laughs> Small detail. Yeah. So, so, the, so the clean team statements, um, or the the not so clean team statements, right? The the ju the judicial uh, uh, recusal potential in in Hadi. There's uh, another big issue going on is the is uh, is the current convening authority um, should he be disqualified or not? He has recused himself from the Nashiri case and the Balul case, and in every other commission. Um, the defense teams have filed motions challenging his whether he should whether he should be disqualified from those cases. Um, he testified last week in the Khan case. Um, he's supposed to testify in the 9/11 cases. I mean, that's the the history of the appointment of the convening authorities caused some issues in the commissions. Hmm. Well, keep us busy. Yeah, no doubt. Um, a, a new ten-layer dip on the way. Oh gosh, please no. I, I think that the dips the the dip <laughs> metaphor has been. Abused. Abused. Um, so, you know, we, we spoke a bit, I think, um, uh, yesterday and earlier this morning about sort of the, the death penalty and, and how it's hovering over the commissions. Right. Um, you know, I've, I've, again, from an amateur outsider viewpoint, you know, it's, it seemed to me like one of the ways, not to square the circle, but at least to make some of these issues far less fraught, would be for some kind of accommodation either where there's a deal um, a plea deal, right, where the government agrees to forego the death penalty, or no plea deal, but the government just drops the death penalty and soldiers ahead otherwise. And I guess, you know, from your perspective, I mean, what kind of impact would would that have on, on, on the, 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 the structural problems you are encountering? So, 
So I'll start with this, that I think that our nation has a floor of due process for capital litigation, and I think that the due process that the commissions provide, well, the ceiling of the due process commissions is always below the floor. Um, so I, I just can't see how any, any capital case survives appeal. Um, on the issues that are involved, you know, that are kind of bogging down and delaying these commissions, um, what a substantial number of them would go away if if there if death was taken off the table. Um, I mean, the convening authority could just do it tomorrow if if he wanted to. Um, the 9/11 defense teams were involved. At least the Mohammed defense team was involved in active pretrial negotiations uh, to take death off the table. Um, a lot of the torture stuff is mitigation evidence. Um, if you look at so if you compare the Hadi al Iraqi case, which is not a capital case. That was that was arraigned in 2014. That case was was kind of marching along to trial until his health issues arose. The, Am I remembering the, the charge in that case is conspiracy? Conspiracy, uh, murder, um, a whole kind of yeah. a, a laundry list of traditional law of war sorts of sorts of. But post 9/11. Post 9/11. Um, if you compare the kind of the trajectory of the Hadi case to the other cases, uh, the Hadi case kind of much further along because because so much of the litigation in the capital cases is tied to the mitigation phase. How much, if if it were possible to take the 9-11 defendants and shift them into the federal civilian criminal justice system, and with the death penalty still on the table, would all the same obstacles just carry over with equally disruptive effect such that you might take the view that the ceiling of due process would remain below the floor constitutionally? Or, or is there something specific about the MILCOM context it is causing that. I think it's specific to the military commissions uh, because the we have a you know we just we have a well developed body of capital due process in the federal court system. Um, the um, I just feel like there's so much that is new and novel and first impression in the commissions that it's just not present, it just wouldn't be present in, uh, in the federal court system. Um, I think that um, the military judges that are presiding over the military commissions uh, have limited authority, have, have much less authority than a federal judge does. Um, uh, I, I, just, I just don't think that the, and this is it's hard to articulate, but I just don't think that a federal district court would run into the same issues and problems that a military commission does. Perhaps, perhaps because a federal district judge would be overconfident of his or her authority, but authority nonetheless. Yeah, and I don't, I don't want this to sound like I think that our military judges are poor or bad mm -hmm. or whatever. It's just their, their authority is different. Right. Um, and, you know, they're also operating, you know, I mean, there's... A large, another, you know, huge problem is just kind of the logistical, the logistical train that is connected to trying these cases down at Guantanamo, um, mm -hmm. and there's and there's there's just not a legitimacy problem with the federal courts. Right. Um, right. So it smooth over a lot of the rough edges. I think so. Um, so, if, by the way, I'm not. I, I do not have a position. I, I am not advocating that we go to federal <laughs> right. court. I'm not advocating that we don't go to federal court. Yeah, right. I, I, 
well, just so my defense teams are clear that I'm not I'm, I'm not advocating for any position. Okay. Well, I, th- I don't think you have to worry. I, th- I think that nothing is happening anytime soon on that front. <laughs> yeah. um, so that, I guess that's you know the one of the last questions I have been. So you they've already, you've already pushed back your retirement date, as I understand it. So I I my I statutorily or regularly I always get statutes and regular. A normal brigadier general retires after five years' time in service. Uh, my uh, my retirement date has been pushed back a little bit. I don't want to talk about the machinations of yeah. when and yeah. what and how that that. Um, but I, guess I, I I don't mean this to put you on the spot. Yeah. I actually mean this as sort of a more that you know. I think my understanding is the same. The same has been true to a degree of General Martin's, the chief prosecutor. I guess the you know. What do you see as your particular? I mean, what is there anything else you are hoping to accomplish before you pass the torch on to to your successor as chief defense counsel? I guess that's what I was trying to get at. Okay, so um, I mean, I want to I I want to continue to advocate uh, for the defense teams to get the resources that they need um, so that they can do their job. Uh, uh, that work's not done, uh, but frankly. That work's never going. I mean, that work's never going to be done. Um, they've got to solve all the logistical issues down at Guantanamo. Um, you know, I advocated for five years to have a second learned counsel on each case, um, and the convening authorities, a, numer- a number of them, uh, uh, disagreed with me. And last, you know, with, within the last couple of weeks, we have excused a learned counsel. So the in the Ramsey Ben Alsheba case, I'm in the I'm in the process of actively. Uh, recruiting. In fact, if any, anybody <laughs> with capital experience is listening, um, uh, send me an email. We, we have an application process out. We, we need to find a learned counsel to replace Jim Harrington. Um, so um, I just want to keep trying to, to get the defense teams what they need. Do you have any more? No, no, but so, but we do have other things to talk about. I, I, so I got to follow but I do have one last question yeah, about that. So, um, you know, I guess the we we try very hard, I think, through different media, to try to make sure proper attention is paid, right, in the public sphere to the what we view as the pressing issues of national security. I guess, you know, do you think people have forgotten about Guantanamo, and if so, do you think that's a bad thing? Yes, and yes. I mean, people. I don't know. People have not. People in the national security sphere probably haven't. I mean, uh, your average American does not know, think, or care about Guantanamo. Um, people in the national security fear, sphere um, know that it exists, but the story is the same. It's just not working. Um, is that a mistake? Absolutely. Um, there are, um, you know, it's important that people know, you know, that people read what, you know, Dr. Mitchell's testimony. I mean, the, the, the legacy of the commissions isn't just what happens in court. It's, you know, some of our governmental decisions uh, that have caused um, some of us to question, um, uh, to second guess some of the decisions that were made, you know, following 9-11. I guess my, my very last question before we turn to frivolity, when I think we're going to actually start fighting, um, <laughs> is um, the, you know, it's, it's a common meme among those who sort of follow the Supreme Court, that the court is done with Guantanamo. And I've suggested, at least every time I've been asked, that I think that may be true for the habeas litigation, so long as there are no new detainees, but that the court probably hasn't even started 
um, with the commissions, right? That that right. one some some way, shape, or form, these cases are coming. Absolutely. And I guess I'm curious. I mean, do you is is the potential Supreme Court review something that is on the radar for you and your teams? Is it you know something that sort of you keep in the back of your mind as the end game, depending upon how the cases work out in the in the you know, trial? So you know, you asked earlier, you know, is the capital nature of the trial make these things any different? Certainly, the capital nature of the trial of these trials makes Supreme Court involvement uh, more likely. Mm -hmm. um, and so, any capital litigator, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a learned counsel. I mean, any any capital litigator uh, throughout the course of their trial and their pretrial preparation is is thinking about Supreme Court, I mean, it's frankly, thinking about review at every step of the process. Sure. Um, uh, so, yes, I, I, I think that, 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 they're, that they're thinking about it. Um, how, can, I, can I articulate it better than I just tried no, no, to? No, no. It's, it's, I, I think it's, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's those last two questions dovetail because it's reminding folks who don't pay attention on a regular basis, not only that this is still happening, but that we're actually still in the fairly formative stages no, right. of what could be a, ma a massively significant direct criminal appeals that by statute, right, go to the D.C. Circuit for de novo plenary review and then cert to the Supreme Court. Right. And, you know, and people are really focused on, you know, how long these trials are taking. Um, if the trials ever happen, I mean, the appeal process is going to take forever, too. Right. I mean, Al-Balul was in the D.C. Circuit for five years. Right. And, I mean, and Al-Balul is still in the D.C. Circuit. I mean, Al-Balul was a 2008 um, contested case where he essentially boycotted his trial, and it's still at the D.C. Circuit. Um, well, you know, we have to keep Michelle busy. <laughs> well, somebody's got to keep Michelle busy. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, all right, so we promised. Wait, I have one. So I brought you guys coins. Oh, oh excellent. So Very right, cool. Chief Defense Counsel, the Marine Corps coins. We need to make National Security Law Podcast we really do. coins. This is excellent. Oh, this is great. Thank you. Um, so thank you. And uh, uh, with this frivolousness or frivolity, it's not actually frivolous at all. Right. But let's get more frivolous and talk about football. Oh, by the way, so yeah. the VUCA on there uh, stands for. Uh, Vague, uncertain, um, chaotic, and ambiguous. So the the, the VUCA yeah. acronym on the bottom. So uh, Willie Gunn was the first uh, <laughs> chief defense counsel. The uh, McDowell is at one of his first staff meetings. He wrote, wrote, walked in the office and wrote VUCA on the wall or on the on the uh, whiteboard. And so I I always like to incorporate something old with that. So I nice. put that I think we have an episode there. title. <laughs> This podcast is VUCA. This, this podcast is VUCA. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Um, all right, so we promised a little bit of frivolity. Nice. So, so you are a Buffalo Bills fan. I am a diehard. D defend that. Well, last year, you know, I'll step to his defense. Last year, they had a nice, nice run, kind of unexpected. You must have enjoyed that. Yeah, I did enjoy that. They were they were a year ahead of the rebuilding process. Um, but, I mean. I'm a believer that you know once you join a team, I mean that's your team. So we had 17 years of a drought of no playoffs. I mean, so okay, four years in a row, four years in a row we are the AFC champions. True. And so, um, and um, there's just something about being a Bills fan, um, and there's you know something about the city of Buffalo. But it's, it seems like it's got a lot, you know people say this about Pittsburgh more frequently, but I recognize it because I'm from San Antonio, and you see this with the Spurs, you know. You, 
as a Buffalo fan, you've got multiple teams, right. but there's still this sort of us against the world, we're, we're not a big market, and we're disrespected, et cetera. That's got to be part oh, of it's Bill's a culture. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge part. So I, but I went to law school in Pittsburgh, um, been to some Steelers games, and um, uh, the, you know, the Bills fans are even more diehard than the, than the uh, Steelers, Steelers fans. So you came up when the Jim Kelly era was in high swing? So I, I, was, uh, I, was, early in the, I was early in my Marine Corps career when, uh, when Jim Kelly, uh, it, I was in college when the K-Gun offense, yeah, when Kelly yeah, started, yeah, and yeah. then uh, early in my Marine Corps career, I was in, in fact, I was in Desert Shield, Desert Storm, uh, first Super Bowl. Uh, we were on the border between Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. I snuck up to the tent where they had the, <laughs> where they had the radio broadcast playing, and nice. I listened to I listened to Wide Right oh, uh, in a sleeping Scott bag Norway. in the sand. You say "ugh," I say "yes." Well, no, I, I say "ugh" only out of sympathy. I, I'm I know. You know, I'm a Cowboys fan. So. I'm a Giants fan. Yeah. So Scott Norwood missing Wide Right was like the best thing that happened in my childhood. That's pretty awesome. Uh, that poor guy I actually feel pretty bad for him. True story. Um, but so, in, yeah. but in true in true Buffalo fan. You know the Bills fans embraced him, right? Yeah, right. Unlike Bill Buckner not being welcome back to Fenway right. for exactly. you know, right. thirty years, yeah. right? Um, so, so uh, uh, how do you see? I mean, Bussy. So, so let, let me ask the, the AFC East question in the moment. So, where does Brady end up, and how does that impact the Bills' chances of competing for the division? So, uh, yeah, where does Brady end up? Uh, we talked about this last night at uh, over drinks. Um, I don't know where Brady ends up. I think it, where Brady ends up doesn't matter to the Bills. I mean, you know, he's, the Brady-Belichick thing is, is awesome, but the Bills are really on, on the rise. You've got Sean McDermott, head coach, uh, Brandon Bean, the general manager, they have a vision, um, and they've got the Bills team on the rise. Uh, the Patriots are on the, are on the decline. Um, uh, but, and I just don't see Tom Brady having the success that Tom Brady has in New England yeah. with any other coach. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bill Bell, you know, I'm a huge believer that coaching matters. Uh, I'm not a Bill Belichick fan, but boy, I respect that guy. Uh, he's incredible. Well, the risk of a uh, performance drop-off at this stage in his career, despite his you know phenomenal health right. regimen, there's a severe risk that there's going to be a big percentage drop-off, like we saw with Philip Rivers this past year. I mean, age catches up. I, I agree that he won't be he'll his performance will be best in New England, hands down. Um, what do the Bills need? What's the missing piece or pieces? So the Bills need, um, they need to give Josh Allen another wide receiver. Um, they need to, uh, their offensive line is, is better, but they need, I feel like they need one more piece on their offensive line. Um, and they need to keep their defense mostly intact. Uh, and it's, um, they've got a lot of money to spend, uh, but they, They've got a bunch of young uh, players that I think they need to sp- focus most of the money on signing their young players yeah. to keep them um, uh, to keep them moving forward. But next year, I've been saying this like my whole <laughs> life, but next year is going to be the year. <laughs> Wait till next year. Um, I mean, I mean, they're clearly the successors to the Patriots. I mean, the you know the, that division. It's not like the Jets or the Dolphins are going to be in any big hurry to. Well, there's there's successor to the Patriots in the sense of. Being the the, the dominant one, team, the, the dominant division. team in the division, then there's success. No, 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 I don't mean that. Yeah. But I, I, I just mean I'm, not, yeah. I'm yeah. not sure there's ever going to be a, yeah. a replication of the of the Patriots. No, it's just dynasty. I mean it seems like uh, the Patriots being down right is is an important condition for the Bills to be. Yes, um, although you know I I like to think that it, 
The Bill, if the Bills just get better, it doesn't matter how good the yeah. Patriots are. Sure. Uh, Where are they in the hierarchy of the AFC? Top three? Like, right so now? Top three? That's... Yeah, that's, 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 that's ambitious. Yeah, that's, that's, that's like that's like whoever said the Mets are the fifth best team in the major. So I, you know, I think we got to see what what plays out in the free agency process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what happens with the with the you know are they going to sign this new deal? Is it going to impact this season? Yeah, um, I spent a ridiculous amount of time thinking about the NFL. Um, well, what about this? Let me ask you about Bills uniforms. So uh-huh. when I think when I picture <laughs> the Jim Kelly Bills, I picture those wow, it was very frivolous. Yeah, those very blue uniforms. That uh, I don't know how much they wore those this past yeah. year. Is that still in the rotation for them? Yeah. So they have. Um, so this is like completely sacrilegious Bills fan. I, my favorite Bills uniform is the red color rush uniform. Oh yeah, it's uh, pretty. It's wait, pretty wait, great. Wait, the col- with the red pants. I prefer I Shed prefer it with red, but, but I love the red jersey. The red jersey is pretty great. In fact, I I went to. A, I went to a Bills game this year, um, and I wanted to get a Devin Singletary color rush jersey, and I couldn't find it. But my brother, uh, I couldn't find a Devin Singletary jersey. My brother was the game with me, uh, and he disappeared for about 45 minutes. And I was like, where the heck? We had these awesome seats, 46-yard line, 12 rows up. Wow. And my brother comes back with a Devin Singletary jersey for me. Um, nice. So it was nice. But it was blue. I didn't complain. It, it, could have, it, was, it was a really <laughs> awesome gesture. Um, that that kind of reminds me. Of, I think my favorite, the the missing jersey in the NFL is the the Broncos orange, the original Broncos uh, yeah. orange. That was a really classic uh, uniform. I wish they brought that back more. Occasionally, you'll see some you know the updated orange. It's not the same. The Chargers powder blue. Yeah, oh yeah, that's actually probably the single best. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, well, now that we have reached that, the total bottom yeah, of I think we're quality. at the nadir of this um, topic. General Baker, thank you for joining us. It's a real treat to have you. Oh, thanks for, thanks for the invitation. Yeah. Um, I'm much less articulate in person than I am, but uh, appreciate it. But you have That's a real great. job, and we just pretend. So That's right. Well. Um, and we actually might be back tomorrow. Yeah, I think we'll be back tomorrow. There's some other stuff going on. All right, fine. So until tomorrow, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, nobody circles the wagons. Like the Buffalo Bills. VUCA. Stay safe out there. Adios. Cool. (laughs) The Bills. Go Bills. Cowboys. Giants.